You're listening to the Brooklyn USA podcast, an occasional audio love letter from Brooklyn to the world. The pandemic has heightened and deepened existing societal inequities, especially for the disabled community who bore the brunt of our country's ableist medical infrastructure. Many were treated as disposable, many were denied life-saving treatments, and now, as vaccines roll out in our cities and in our neighborhoods, many are being overlooked and ignored again. This week, we're imagining our disability justice future and asking you to do the same. This is what it sounds like in Brooklyn, USA. It's easy to like demonize disabled people is what I've learned as a historian of medicine. Disabled people are continually blamed. Disabled people are continually asked to make sacrifices and posed as the problem. Disabled people were told that our healthcare needs were not important during the rollout, right? Because like there are more important things going on with the vaccine, right? So we'll just have to put off our treatments and put them on hold. And now again, we're being told, even though you're high risk, you're not the priority for vaccination. My name is Nicole Schroeder, and I'm a PhD candidate at the University of Virginia. I study the history of disability in medicine in early America. I'm also a disabled individual and a disabled academic and activist. Hello, my name is Nader Bahu. And I want to talk about certain issues that have been happening in New York that have been affecting disabled Americans. New York is discussing about the usage of a vaccine passport, which is dangerous precedent to put on. New Yorkers can now use a digital certification to prove they've been vaccinated against COVID-19. The state has launched the Excelsior Pass. State officials say this technology is similar to a mobile airline boarding pass. People will be able to either print out their pass or store it on their smartphones using the Excelsior Pass wallet app. Users can share their COVID-19 vaccination, their negative test status. The pass can be used at stadiums, theaters, arenas, as well as weddings and event venues. A vaccine passport should not be a way for people to gain their freedom. There are disabled people who cannot take the vaccine due to their health concerns. I have gone into anaphylaxis multiple times in the past. I have gone into anaphylaxis over the flu shot before. So I really need to be in a medical setting that can fully handle an expected case of anaphylaxis if I'm going to get the vaccine. There are a lot of allergy sufferers who have noted the same. Each disabled person is not the same and deals with different health issues. The passport will create a social class division and to assume every individual can take a vaccine is very unrealistic. The vaccine passport ignores the different health factors that an individual has. 
and sets an ableist precedent. Part of the problem with these vaccine passports is we are still in a time where vaccine equity is not there. And so not everybody has access to a vaccine. And even when states open up and say, you know, everyone 16 and up can get a vaccine, people with disabilities first might have an access problem. And then second, there might be reasons due to their disability that they're not able to get vaccinated because of comorbidities that they have. I'm Seema Mohapatra, and I am a tenured professor at Indiana University Robert H. McKinney School of Law in Indianapolis, and my focus is on health law and bioethics, as well as health equity. I absolutely think it's really important to make a distinction between anti-vax and vaccine hesitancy and medical reasons for not getting vaccinated. All three of those are different. Anti-vax, I would put in a category of people that no matter what the scientific evidence says that they are not going to get vaccinated because of, you know, falsely held beliefs about uh, vaccinations. People that are vaccine hesitant might be people that have legitimate concerns about the vaccine. People that are vaccine hesitant, often with education, people from within the community that they trust giving information, they often change their minds and are willing to get the vaccine. And we see that the more people that someone knows that gets the vaccine, the more likely they are to get the vaccine themselves. And then there might be a very small portion of the population because of certain immunosuppressed conditions they might have, it might not be safe for them to get the vaccine. I don't think the vaccine passports are a very effective way to monitor how the rollout is going or how safe our communities are. We really need to rethink how we track data and whether the goal is actually reaching herd immunity or providing surveillance of people's actions. When we start saying there's a way to screen other people for vaccination, then we're saying there's a way to demand that people give medical information to the general public that is really no one's business. And there are going to be a lot of reasons why people can't get vaccinated or haven't gotten vaccinated. As someone who has studied the history of medicine, like we've always had a really hard time getting people to buy into vaccines, right? Information about vaccines cannot just be something that we randomly talk about once when a pandemic strikes in 2020. It has to be part of our scientific education for children. It has to be part of something that we talk about more broadly. I think that there are a lot of concerns about what the vaccine has the potential to do and how medical information is being employed. And I think really all of our resources should be going into properly informing people about why they should get vaccinated rather than saying like, okay, well, if you don't, I'm gonna you know, ensure that you don't, can't get a job. People that either physically or because of past experiences do not get vaccinated might be in a disadvantage to be able to even earn their living, especially when we see that the laws are pretty protective of the employer if the employer does decide to mandate vaccinations. Employers are able to mandate vaccinations in general under an emergency use authorization according to the EEOC. So as long as there are exemptions for people that have religious reasons for not taking the vaccine or medical reasons for not taking the vaccine. 
the employer under the Americans with Disabilities Act, if it's for medical reasons, needs to make a reasonable accommodation for those employees. Now, let's say that you're a grocery store clerk, right? And the grocery store has made it required for everybody to get vaccinated and you for medical reasons cannot get vaccinated. Well, the employer can say, well, it's not reasonable for me to have a grocery store clerk that cannot go into the grocery store. And so then we don't have to continue the employment. The ADA was supposed to be a starting point, and I think that the conversation should have developed further than it has, but like the ADA is flouted in all instances, right? Even in our vaccine rollout, like these spaces that people are going to are not accessible. There's no ramifications for denying someone access. That person is just denied, right? That company suffers no ramifications unless it becomes a news story or, you know, it goes to the media. And I think that we should be in a place where we care about our communities and care about one another not necessarily based on our, you know, assessed productivity and worth. Our country has has not protected people with disabilities. And even with the Americans with Disabilities Act, we do not have as many protections as you would think that we should have because of caveats like the fact that if you make an accommodation, it has to be reasonable. And if an employer claims that it's too costly, they are not required to make those kinds of accommodations. So our society has ignored a whole swath of the population and any of us could become disabled at any time, right? This is not a category that is not malleable. Disability needs to matter for everyone because anyone can join our ranks at any time. Anyone can be disabled. And I think those people who are dealing with long COVID now realize that you can go from being a perfectly healthy 20-year-old to a very sick, chronically ill 20-year-old. And I think even more broadly, it shouldn't have to happen to you for it to matter in the world. <laughs> Disabled people, I think, have given us so many coping strategies during this pandemic. The disability rights movement says institutionalization is a bad idea and we need better home health care options. If we didn't have so many people in nursing homes, where would we be right now? Would we have the number of deaths that we have? Doubtful. Like, where? what are we thinking about and what are we building towards? If that world is not accessible, then you're leaving out billions and billions of people, right? Like a quarter of the world population is disabled. That is significant. And if you don't care about disability justice, then you basically say those people can live as second-class citizens and it doesn't matter. And I think we really need to wrangle with the fact that we are casting out so much like talent and ingenuity and community members as too expensive. <laughs> I think that's what it all comes down to. My idea of disabled activism 
is helping the disabled person be who they are and making things better for them. Issues like marriage equality, transportation issues, having a hard time getting a job or opportunities are often ignored in the public eye. I feel a lot of the focus on disability activism is focused on banning certain words rather than helping the disabled Americans with their actual needs. People who are not part of the disability community feel they have a better understanding of our issues than the actual people who are dealing with it. Disabled people aren't their tools to push their own ideas. So please understand our voices are important and listen to what we have to say. Hello, hello, hello. My name is Brian McCarthy. Six years ago, uh, I noticed that my vision was starting to go south, specifically my central vision. I remember being uh, in Park Slope, standing at the corner of 9th Street and 7th Avenue, and I couldn't tell if the light across the street was green or red. So it turns out I have something called LHON, which is a genetic mutation where the optic nerve that, that controls your central vision, it decays. It's sort of like, it just, it goes out. It's like, uh, you know, it's like the cord gets pulled out of the wall. There's no more, there's no more juice. A big part of my disability was figuring out how to navigate my disability through the prism of shared experience. And I thought, what if you could make a show where I could meet people that are disabled? I said, I could call it Dislabeled. I do agree. It sounds a little hokey, but I do like it. I don't know. I like it. Whatever. We made a, uh, a pilot that we brought to Brick. And they, they liked it. And we're now currently in production making shows uh, for Brick. I can only speak from my own experience. There is a, there's a loneliness in disability that I think that people that aren't disabled don't even realize. They're so worried sometimes about offending us or saying or doing the wrong thing that they don't engage us. And I don't even think it's a conscious thing. Like, I, I don't think people outwardly say, oh, there's somebody who is mobility impaired. They're in a wheelchair. I'm not going to engage them. I think a lot of times there isn't the wrong thing. It's just 
There's no real way to know how to talk to anybody, frankly. When we meet anybody in a room, there's always a thought that passes in your head. If uh, When I engage them, how is this social engagement going to go? And I think when you put in the fact that, oh, I don't want to offend this person because they're disabled, then I think you sometimes just don't engage them at all. And I think that's where the loneliness comes in. The world is getting better for disabled people. Is it happening fast enough? No, but is it happening fast enough for any of us? No, but I think it's it's sort of lurching towards a place where everyone can be acknowledged by virtue of just, you know, who they are and so I think it's getting a lot better. It's been horrible, but it's been horrible for a lot of people. So, you know, I think if you apply perspective, I think the future is brighter, but it's almost like how could it not be? Up to 10% of people who have had COVID are still experiencing significant health complications months and months after they were initially infected. These long haulers are dealing with pain, uncertainty, loss, and fear as they navigate our deeply ableist and inaccessible society. But they are also finding community with each other and with other disabled and chronically ill people and organizing for disability justice. Brooklyn-based burlesque performer, sex educator, and activist, Una Aya Osato, is one of these COVID long haulers. Hi, friends. Hi, friends. Hi, friends. Hi, friends. I wanted to give a health update. I've been sick in bed for three weeks. It's been eight weeks. I had COVID and, like, lingeringness um, for about three months. Today marks nine months of uh, when I first got COVID. It's been a year. (laughs) It's been a year. It's been a year. My name is Una Aya Osato. I'm a performer, writer, and educator. Um, I'm currently laying in bed. I got a bunch of pillows. I've got a bunch of blankets. Today's a pretty achy day of uh, a lot of joint pain. And I'm very excited to be here, feeling cozy, even in pain, um, just to get to be with you. So thank you for having me. I got sick with COVID March 9th, so more than a year ago at this point. Especially in the beginning, there was just like, you know, being in New York, being in Brooklyn, like, there's just constant sirens. That's all we were hearing um, for, for so long. And I was just like so sick in bed. I had friends who work in ERs and I'd be like, should I come in now? Like, there were definitely um, a bunch of nights where I'd go to sleep. And I'd like ask my partner to like make sure to tell everyone I love, like if you know if I I wasn't sure if I'd wake up or, um, and just make sure to like tell people that I love them, and that was like so important to me before I'd like go to sleep. I'm like, please, please, I need you to tell all all these people. I can't say I'm like getting better. Um, the the symptoms just continue. Um, so I've kind of had to shift what I think better is to um, being able to listen to my body and give it what it needs and be compassionate in the pain um, and see the way that um, it connects me to others who are also in pain. All of this has been like so life-changing. Reflecting on it, uh, having been sick for more than a year, 
um, I think about like so much loss and so much grief that I feel. I mean, we're in a time of mass death, so of course there's like so much grief. Because I like feel so much grief and like pain, it is helpful for my uh, my own spirits to think about also what I what I have gained in this time and that um, it looks different than how I probably would have measured it a year ago. I'm not uh, wealthier or more careerness or. <laughs> Like, I don't have children or I haven't, like, uh, bought a house or, uh, uh, like, <laughs> have more money or anything like that. But what I have gained has been essential for my life and things that I have actually been um, searching for for so long. A lot of what I've been playing with is the ways that having COVID and long COVID and all this stuff has stripped down a lot of what has not been like useful for me in a lot of ways for a long time like feeling like all this like obligations to other people and people pleasing shit that when I when I was like so acutely sick um I, I couldn't even like entertain that I don't want anyone like being in any kind of pain so that they can serve these fucked up ideas of capitalism I would use all my energy to like teach online for a few hours a day and then be like sick in bed the whole rest of the day or a few days in retrospect I was like why didn't I just why did I feel so deeply tied to like needing to keep working there was like so many layers of ableism and like capitalist propaganda of like how to define myself by my productivity so much of the worlds that I am part of or the whole world so ableist particularly like performing worlds I'm part of what we're asked to do um, as performers and the ways that we're asked to like override our body's needs, um, I won't, I'm not able to do anymore. And that's like both like, that's great. I shouldn't do that shit. And will it mean like less opportunities for me? Will people think I'm hard to work with or, but I, I my body won't allow me to do that anymore. So, so much of, what I've been learning about is like how to really just do what I, I can for my body and mind. I'm having to listen in ways that uh, I have refused to for so long. Going slower uh, is not, doesn't feel like a, it's not a punishment. It's a, it's actually, I, I'm able to, look at squirrels and uh birds and flowers and things that I would have like been rushing too fast to to be able to see and notice I'm I'm able to to see like the other friends who are going slow and um just I feel like I've developed more empathy for um other people and myself um and the only I feel like the way that that's been possible is because of community because of um, disabled and chronically ill community and um, people that have held me and people that have like shared their wisdom with me um, and you know I feel like that's been the case of like queer community or like all these different communities that I'm part of it's like the way you learn is because others um, are so generous and caring and like bring you in with loving arms and are like 
there are others who've been here. Welcome. We've been waiting for you. And like, uh, we love you. There's so much to learn. You have so much to share. The only way we're going to be able to do this is by us looking out for each other. Our government has shown that they, from the start, they have not been looking out for us. And so it truly will be all of us looking out for each other. I have a, like a really incredible community of, of um, friends and family and um, people who offer care. Um, so I could, I was able to like call people and be like, I'm feeling this, do you know what I, like, do you have any thoughts? And um, different uh, people would send me tinctures or um, my sister would get, was getting me Chinese herbs. Then other friends who deal with um, chronic illness and different forms of um, disability who like just very, very generously, lovingly like sat with me on the phone. We just had this really beautiful conversation about their journey with um, chronic illness and how they how they deal and they just like gave me space to ask a lot of questions and just um, uh, like held me just like really lovingly and um, without judgment. It's been like so life-saving to in these moments where I'm like am I really still sick? And it's like, yeah, you are still sick. And then just to know that there are other people who are like, oh, yeah, I feel you. Like, this fucking sucks. And I'm like, it's not like anyone t takes away anyone else's pain, but just being witnessed by by others is so, um, it's so essential in, in just, like, being able to witness myself and have, um, like, love and compassion for myself. Are we going to really be fighting for the world that we all deserve, where we can all be free, have what we need, be safe? Um, and um, I, I hope that that is what we're all um, awakening to and, and fighting for. I did a workshop for my students about AIDS activism. And like this was like in April or May. I was still super sick, but I was um, did this workshop about uh, AIDS activism and then also what co what was happening with COVID and how it disproportionately was affecting uh, communities of color, poor communities. And, um, and they, I remember like they were so moved to see those who were directly impacted fighting for their lives. People being like, I'm fighting for myself, I'm fighting for my loved ones, I'm literally like, um, there's no other choice but to fight. Um, and, and that's what we saw in like the uprisings in June. We continue to see like uh, all the time. Like I feel like those lessons like have reverberated. I had more energy than I've had, than I had this whole year was, in June and I think obviously because we were witnessing and part of like monumental change and uh, uprisings in our city and our in our world and the power and the courage of of everyone being out and all the different ways that people were standing uh raising consciousness and challenging power and um 
I think um, what it did for me, like, was like a very necessary uh, for my own healing. How do you constantly dream um, and believe in your dreams until they actually, you materialize them and create new realities? That dream world will look like um, everybody having uh, that there's no scarcity of, of um, care for, for anybody, that everyone will have a basic income so that working is um, not something that people have to prioritize over their own health. It'll be a world of reparations and one that centers pleasure. Um, everyone will be able to tap in and listen to what their bodies need. Um, and everyone will have the support of their communities caring for them and everyone showing up in exactly what they're uh, able to do. Um, no one, like, just everyone feeling that care everywhere. And when that happens, I will be better. So all my friends who are like, oh, I just wish you could be better, they'll be working for that world and then I'll be better and and they'll be better and we'll all <laughs> not, yeah. I'm, I'm still in pain and, uh, but my spirits feel so much um, higher and like the, the pain like feels bearable when I'm in community and it just doesn't feel like the, the main thing I'm feeling. The main thing I'm feeling is like deep love and connection. And that's like what I could ask for in this world.
community building workshops. We, we hope to empower our peers and comrades with a greater sense of agency while navigating their own paths um, to care and treatment. Currently, the state of accessibility in the art world speaks to how much there is to still learn and unlearn. Artists and activists with disabilities have been fighting for accommodations for basic needs for decades, but the policies and practices of institutions are rarely examined by society and people with disabilities know that the fundamental issue is of a society that needs to adapt to the needs of its people. Thank you for asking me <laughs> to be a part of this and I hope it's okay. You know, until the Disabilities Rights Act was passed, there was no cutouts on curbs for people with wheelchairs. So people with wheelchairs literally couldn't cross the street. And that's a really a physical manifestation of someone with an intellectual disability. So when you talk about schooling, really what you need to do is to make the lesson plans accessible. You need to create a ramp for them so that they can get on board and they can get involved with the class. My name is Olivier Bernier. I'm the director of the film Forget Me Not. Emilio. Emilio. <laughs> I see you. I love you, baby boy. When I looked at him, I, I just saw a baby. He didn't look like a baby with Down syndrome. For me, he just looked like my child. So the film Forget Me Not is about uh, in inclusive education and um, it follows kind of the journey of our own son. Our son Emilio was born with Down syndrome. I was really unprepared for what life would be like for someone with Down syndrome. And, you know, we were living in New York, we were living in Brooklyn, and we we're like, this is the most progressive place in the country. You know, it's going to be probably a really good place for Emilio to grow up. And what we soon started to find out is that actually the school system in New York City is one of the most segregated school systems in the country. Wherever Emilio lands in life, we want to make sure that he's part of the fabric of society, that he's, for no better word, integrated with society. And when it came to schooling and class setting, what was really important for us is that Emilio had the opportunity to go into a class uh, with what we call neurotypical peers, you know, that are typically developing so that he can learn from them, but also they can learn from him. And uh, that was the most important thing for us and it, it didn't go so well. He wants to eat. eat. Yes. Eat. Do you want to give it? What's that? Chicken. Chicken. Roll, roll your boat. <laughs> exactly down the street. 
They evaluated him and very quickly determined that he should be in a small special class um, with 12 other students that also have disabilities. In other words, he should be segregated from the other population of students. Now, there, there are laws that have been written to kind of counteract this. So there's IDEA that says, you know, a child should be included as the first option unless the child's a danger to himself or others. You know, we kind of thought that at least they would start him in an inclusive or integrated setting, and then if it wasn't working out, we'd look at other options. But kind of instantly you go into this meeting and it's kind of intimidating because, you know, to them, your child is just another child, but to you, this is like determining kind of the future trajectory of your child. So you go into the meeting and they start to say what's wrong with your child, essentially. And, you know, and that's okay. We understand that Emilio has challenges, like any other child, really. And his challenges might be more significant, but to us, you know, that's exactly why we're there. Very quickly, it became apparent that they were kind of trying to sell us this setting of a, of a segregated setting for Emilio, and uh, we weren't having it. So, you know, quickly became contentious. It was kind of a battle ever since that. We, they did end up making a weird like sidestep where he would be allowed into an integrated setting, but he would still have the recommendation of a segregated setting. It's very odd, but that was also putting him on track for his later years to be in a segregated setting. So we weren't very happy with that either. If you go back to the 50s, if Emilio was born even in the 60s or 70s, the doctor at the hospital would have said that Emilio is going to be a burden to us and we should really consider putting him in an institution. There was a couple exposés of the institutions and what these places were like, and they were underfunded and just terrible, terrible, terrible places where students received no education. They were essentially just holding cells for people to kind of fade out, fade away from society. North of the city on the way to Bear Mountain is a lovely looking place called the Letchworth Village Rehabilitation Center. Set among the hills and woods of suburban Rockland County, a passerby could easily mistake the place for a country club or a college campus. But the early morning mist gave the place an eerie feeling like a set from a horror movie. And once inside, that feeling became suddenly appropriate. Their life is just uh, hours and hours of endless nothing to do, no one to talk to, no expectations, just a, a, an endless life of misery and filth. The institutions that we had were eugenic in nature. We were trying to use science to improve the human race by removing people with disabilities from the human race. What we didn't realize is that our science was also a direct affront to human rights, and a direct affront to the right for persons to live, to have a life, to be included. People don't know the Third Reich was modeled after the American eugenics movement. We were the source of some of that thinking to completely remove 
the genetic code for people that you think are deficient or dangerous. I think that was the root of all of the separation that we see of people with disabilities. The rest of the country saw this and they were like, this is, this is awful, we can't have this. But suddenly you have thousands and thousands of students that need to go somewhere. So they got absorbed into the public school system. And, you know, one of the theories is that what happened is those institutions kind of got transformed into a segregated day school called District 75. Essentially what District 75 is, is like a satellite district that exists in all different parts of the city. I believe there's something like 60,000 kids that are part of this school district, and each D75 school actually exists within another school. So say PS125, just picking that randomly, might have a District 75 school within that school, except no one knows about it because there's no entrance sign, there's no label to it. And there are these segregated classes that only have people with significant disabilities and they don't interact with any other kids throughout the day. Uh, they have their own set of teachers. They, have, they don't go to the same cafeteria. They don't share the same gym classes and they have separate entrances. You know, I think a lot of people in this country can think of other examples when people have separate entrances and it's, um, it's not something that, that should exist. Uh, focus of the documentary became to just make people aware of it because I think once you become aware of it it's shocking we're kind of documenting this whole experience as we go and I'm kind of making this documentary forget me not about this journey and what started to happen is I was speaking to a lot of experts throughout the filmmaking process and you know, these people have spent their lives really looking at this issue of inclusion. And then I started speaking to a lot of families who had also kind of been down similar paths as ours. And what quickly started happening is that the filmmaking kind of influenced the trajectory for Emilio. So by speaking to other families, it kind of gave us a window into what life could look like if he is included. So for one example, we went to Boston um, where there's a school called the Henderson Inclusion School. And it was started by a principal who in his adult years became blind and was essentially pushed away from teaching. And he decided, well, I'm gonna start a school that's inclusive for people with all kinds of challenges. Basically 40% of their population has a disability and almost 20% of their population has a significant disability where almost certainly in another school district they would be in a segregated class. And what they did is said, no, we're not going to have any segregated classes. We're going to put everyone in the same class. We're going to give them their therapy in the same class, and we're going to have everyone together. And it was kind of a big experiment, and it worked. Is it any harder to teach this way, or is it...? No. I mean, it's supposed to be hard teaching anyway, right? <laughs> I say when it's, when it's not hard, you're not doing it right. I think inclusion makes it, makes everyone better teachers. What does inclusion mean to you? Inclusion mean to me is uh, 
how like how people are nice to each other and we how we respect respect the uh, classmates. What we know about kids with intellectual disabilities who are ultimately successful is that they develop good communication. Well, it's very difficult to develop if you're in an environment where nobody has typical communication skills. In the middle of the box? Yes. Yes, excellent. Remember, if you can, to do this for Yes, I agree. Amelia is doing great. I think this the pandemic was hard for any child, and especially a child with a disability. You know, we definitely saw a bit of a, a regression in Emilio during that time, but we're really excited because in two weeks he's going to be going back to school. We're a bit of a refugee from the New York school system because at some point we just realized that Emilio is not going to have the opportunities that we want him to have in Brooklyn. So we actually decided to pick up and move to Montclair, New Jersey to a school district that we believe is more progressive and their philosophy is much more focused on inclusion. If you have a child, you just expect them to be able to go to school and to be with all the other children. And then once you have a child with a disability, you learn that that's not so easy and, and that's not necessarily going to happen. The world around them isn't set up to accept them into society. And what the mission of the film is really is to kind of show that and to show that there is a way that we can include everybody into our schools and, and society in general. So really what it comes down to is thinking about the society we want to create. Hey everybody, welcome to another Griffin's Corner. This week we are talking about the section 504 sit-in, ins. In San Francisco in 1977, disabled activists like Kitty Cohn, Brad Lomax, and Judy Human did a sit-in protest. Disabled activists and caregivers occupied a government building for almost a month, wow, to fight for their rights. They had lots of supports from other activist groups like the Black Panther Party, the Gay Men Butterfly Brigade, and the United Farm Workers. They refused to leave until Section 504 was signed into law. Section 504 protects disabled people's civil rights. It makes it so that any program that gets money from the U.S. government can't exclude or disintegrate against disabled people. Fun fact! This sit-in was the longest occupation of a government building in U.S. history. Government officials were very mean to the disabled people inside the building. They cut the telephone wires, but protesters still went on and used sign language to communicate with other people outside the building. Lots of people won new rights and protections because of these brave protesters and actionists. Thank you for listening. Brooklyn! Brooklyn USA is produced by me, Kyrell Palmer. And me, Emily Bogosian. And me, Shirin Barri. And me, Charlie Hoxie. And me, Mayumi Sato. And me, Griffin Wormer. With help this week from Taylor Cook, 
Lauren Germain, and filmmaker Nadir Bahu. You can find the full video of Nadir's comments in our show notes. If you want to tell us a story or somehow end up on our podcast, check the show notes for a link to our guide on recording a voice memo on your mobile phone and sending it to us on the internet. If you like what you hear or think we missed something, comment, like, share, and subscribe. And follow us at Brick TV on Twitter and Instagram for updates. For more information on this and all Brick Radio podcasts, visit www.brickartsmedia.org slash radio. Hello, I am in Syracuse, New York, and tonight the International Space Station is flying overhead. Tonight and tomorrow, we may be able to see it with telescopes. For your safety, if the International Space Station explodes overhead, make sure you're inside and don't get hit by debris. Thank you for listening. Brooklyn. This is a production of Rick Radio. Thank you.